Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello. Welcome to Transgender Day of Visibility here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And we're here specifically for Global South TDOV. So thank you for all of you for joining us today. I'm Michelle Miao, host of the Michelle Miao Show. For those who are joining us for the first time or here at the club for the first time, the program is focused on social justice issues with an intersectional approach. It's also your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'll go ahead and start our panel or program today and have each of our speakers introduce themselves. We'll start with Aishani. Thank you. Um, I'm Aishani Majumdar. I um, grew up in India and Indonesia, and um, I... I'm you, on on a regular day. I'm just Aishani, but today I decided to be visible. <laughs> um, and um, I am a marketeer, a businesswoman, and um, it's been really important for me to um, bridge all of my identities together and like really own my intersectionality. And I'm just happy to be here and talk about it. Good with. Hey everybody, my name is Wit, also known as Joaquin Guerrero. I use he/him pronouns. Um, I like what you said about uh, bridging all the intersections. Um, well, I'm mixed race. I was born in Mexico. I'm half white. I then grew up in Canada. Um, and then I came here to you know, pursue my life as a trans leader today. Um, so I'm just representing myself today as, as a um, leader of trans rights in San Francisco um, and whatever, however else I can be helpful. Um, yeah, <laughs> happy to be here. Amazing. Thanks for being here. And Kavi. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Kavi. Pronouns are he, him. Um, I am born and raised in the Bay Area in the South Bay. Um, I work in digital media and local government. And I am transgender and South Asian and happy to lend my voice to this Trans Day Visibility event. And yeah, great to see everyone. Really happy to be here. Thank you all for being here. Well, you know, I... We were having a discussion about uh, putting the program together. I really appreciate all of your joy and our smiles and, you know, our resistance that they're not able to take our joy away despite how scary it is when we walk outside those doors. And um, it's not, I think for most of us, it's not a surprise but then again, it's 2023, and we're still dealing with this. It almost seems like we're rolling back uh, on on a lot of you know these policies, and we'll get into the laws here in the United States and the policies that continue to discriminate against us. But I want to acknowledge and thank you for continuing to smile and sharing those smiles and joys here on this day. Let's start by having each of you share with us, you know, the lived experiences of folks who are not only transgender, but also uh, asylees, refugees, uh, migrants, and even immigrants. We'll start with Aishani. Sure. Um, well, I would love to talk about, um, you know, asylees and trans, and trans intersections. A great example, I mean, is my lived experience itself. And I'm not representative of everyone, but it is one story among the many. Um, in, during the period of 2018 and 2020, around 280,000 people applied for asylum in the U.S., and only, I think, 11% were granted asylum. I was one of those people. 
Um, like I said, I grew up in India, I grew up in Indonesia, and I was suffocated in that society and felt like I couldn't find freedom. And um, and it was it was a life's life work to find a way to higher education in America in order to find myself and find the courage and freedom and financial mobility to own this life and create this life. Um, and so it was, it was a grueling process um, and it was one process of asylum. And it's very different from someone who's coming in, you know, on the, at, at the border and applying for a refugee status. Um, but it's, it affects, I know so many people that it's affecting today. Um, it's quite a, like, I describe it as a limbo. You're, you know, you're trying to come from another world, another shore, and trying to build a life here, trying to find what you can, um, you know, how you can grow, uh, um, spread your wings. But then all of these logistics legal legislation logistics are in the way and that's that's the limbo piece right i i had the limbo piece in the beginning where i had to sort of come here you know get an education find a way to talk to asylum lawyers um, and build a case in order to apply for asylum and once i applied for asylum it went smoothly and then since then i've been able to you know have a freer life and, and focus on my medical transition and, and hormone therapy and surgeries, which wouldn't have happened if I had been stuck in that limbo. And a lot of people are stuck in that limbo while they're applying for asylum, either at the border or they're inside the uh, border and, and they're, you know, applying for asylum with asylum lawyers. And it's just so much uncertainty. And so it's like a black hole. It's an entire black hole um, with, and there's constantly like people trying to rage war on it. Um, so there's so much there, but that's, that's my story and it's representative of one data point. Um, but yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, a little bit more about my personal story. Um, well, you know, uh, being mixed race, like my mom is white, she's from Canada and she was traveling in Mexico. My dad, um, came from like a very like, uh, direct impacts of, of recent colonialism from the Spanish, uh, in Mexico. So um, I, I really grew up seeing a class disparity of the impacts of the colonial history in this in this uh, North America, right? So um, that was always a very clear lesson for me since I was a small child. And that kind of led to these like kind of social expectations of like who and how I was supposed to be as opposed to being able to be authentic, right? Um, so in Canada, I ended up connecting just by obviously searching and feeling so often out of place in a very like white country, uh, not a lot of Latino population. I, I immigrated when I was eight um, and left Mexico at that point, which, you know, as the, the regular immigrant story is told, like as an opportunity for better education. Um, but of course, there's always like more to that story um, or it's a trade off, right? Like you give up a part of yourself in order to pursue something that might benefit you in the future. I think most immigrant children or uh, parents kind of know that. Um, but yeah, so so I was always kind of searching, um, but I was very much that trans child who like cried if I was put in a dress, you know, like wanted desperately try to cut my hair short, you know, so it's things that were like really obvious. Um, but for parents who don't understand or like are religious, uh, there was just so much confusion and, and like that was very traumatic, you know what I'm saying? So, um, so, but ultimately I ended up um, 
connecting with um, some indigenous leaders in Vancouver, uh, BC, uh, through the harm reduction movement, because I ended up ran away from home when I was like 15 uh, to be queer and figure out my gender identity. I didn't know any trans people as a teenager. Uh, that came much later. Uh, but I knew I was, I would say like, you know, I would say like, I know I'm not, you know, gay in this way or queer in this way, but it, I don't have a word for it. And then eventually that word was trans. So, um, but anyway, so, so I went to work uh, with a um, nonprofit there that had indigenous leaders and, and they said, you know, kind of like, we need you to speak up. And that led me on this journey to kind of try to reconnect with like my father's like indigenous side. And um, found out I had a relative actually in, in the mission after I got here. Uh, but mainly what brought me here was like knowing that the history of trans rights really originated here and in New York, but um, specifically on the West Coast here. Um, so that was my second journey of immigration. Um, but really also of decolonizing myself. Um, and I then went on to um, direct this housing program um, in San Francisco, Our Trans Home. I'm no longer there, but it, you know, at that time, I, a very large uh, population of the people accessing services of housing um, and case management were um, asylum seekers, people coming out of detention centers. Um, and I remember them telling me, you know, there would be uh, one day 10, uh, 10 trans women, trans Latinas specifically, like in Mexico in a detention center. And the next day two would leave and then 10 would come. So, you know, just being there uh, for them in those moments uh, that they finally got to get a shelter over their heads and hearing the stories of what they had to go through. People, you know, traveling by foot from Honduras all the way through Mexico, you know, coming across the border. Um, so many stories like that um, about trans migrants and, and the untold truths of what they go through to to get here. And then and then just to have been in that moment where I could see them thrive and really just turn their lives around was such a gift. Um, so I'm super honored to be able to talk about that here today. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah. Kavi. Yeah. It's, it's always so great hearing other trans people's stories because we have such different journeys, but there's always these motifs that kind of like echo. And and I really resonated with a lot of your stories, even though um, personally mine is a bit different. But I, I grew up in, in the U.S. I was born and raised here in the Bay Area. Um, my parents immigrated from India um, and my mom was pregnant with me while, the, while she came here. So I was born kind of right on time here. Um, which I'm very grateful for because I know that my citizenship and my growing up here has granted me a lot of privilege. Um, but I feel like we, we like there's a very unique experience for you know South Asian kids or Asian people or um, any kind of non-white person in uh, growing up in an immigrant family in the U.S. Uh, for me personally, you know, I, I had a lot of shame growing up. I had a lot of man. I wish I was white or I wish I had parents like my white friends parents you know and I had this queerness about me that I didn't understand and this frustration with my environment that I didn't understand and was kind of navigating my my childhood that way um just feeling misunderstood and that I was just different and weird somehow um and it wasn't until I was a bit older that I started to learn more about LGBT and trans and it wasn't until I was in college that I really uh 
noticed stuff about myself and figured it out that I was trans. It was kind of through meeting trans friends and being like, wow, I wish I was like you. <laughs> it sounds like um, a lot of your experiences, you know, resonate with me. And um, in kind of discovering that it was it was kind of difficult as well because I felt like I had to continue distancing myself from my South Asian identity because there was so much, the way that I understood it was that, you know, South Asian, especially the religious side, um, really not accepting. And so I felt like I had to choose between my South Asian identity or my trans identity. And um, at that point, I felt like I had to choose my trans identity. And it wasn't until years later in understanding myself and also, you know, as you were saying, Joaquin, like de decolonializing yourself, right? And really kind of reaching back into those roots and realizing that it really is because of colonialism and, you know, those kind of historical events that our culture is even so transphobic in the first place, right? And so in, in making those connections, I realized that it really wasn't about separating the two identities, but really intermingling them and really um, seeing the way that they are interwoven with each other is where I would find my identity. And so going through that self-discovery process was um, really interesting and kind of had to, I really had to question everything that I kind of knew and understood growing up based on my experiences. And I'm still kind of detangling those pieces. There's still a lot of work to be kind of done internally there. But I have just found a new sense of community with this new intersection that I've found. And, you know, through events like this and through organizations like this, um, it's been so wonderful. And, you know, Michelle, you talked about trans joy in kind of the face of everything. And, you know, today's trans day of visibility and the way that I feel about visibility is, is very paradoxical. I feel like it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Um, with visibility also kind of comes more targeting and more hostility as well. And so on one hand, visibility is a privilege, but on one hand, it can be really scary, right, to go out into the real world. And so uh, finding those intersections, I feel like, is not just about coming to oneself internally, but also like finding your place in the world and finding your community. And so I'm just double grateful for being here and having an event like this. Let's give a round of applause for our speakers for having the courage to be up here and sharing so much of yourself and being vulnerable at the same time. You know, U.S. immigration policies, historically speaking, are actually uh, racist. <laughs> They're designed to keep people, certain people, yeah. out of this country. And I myself, even, you know, as a citizen of the United States, having been born here to refugee parents, um, didn't understand that until actually I got married. I got married to uh, a woman, you know, from a different country and went through the entire process and realized that, wow, the actual only way that you, you could, you could do this like legally safe to do, you know, would be to get married and by heteronormative terms and a very, you know, binary experience, very male, female, you know? And so, but, you know, we're not here to talk about me. However, the question, it's a great segue, is to go into, we know that immigration policies are racist and continue to be so, and they're so confusing these days. Um, but w how are they transphobic? It's a big, it's a you know, yeah, yeah, it's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> yeah. 
I love that you shared that, though. Um, it It's so important that we have conversations like this, because as I was going through asylum, like the process, it was so mind-boggling to me that my American friends had no clue how the immigration system works or how their own government works at all. Um, like... And uh, like I found out like USCIS is entire, almost entirely funded by like the fees that immigrants pay. Um, but um, to answer your specific question, I mean, transness is such a vulnerable um, identity in this world. And it is, um, you know, it is one of the most targeted ones in this world. It's, I mean, growing up a shore, like on a different shore, right? Like it's, you grow up suffocated within yourself, within a society. It's like double suffocation, right? And, and coming out of that is, it requires so much that the immigration system in the US isn't built to even contextualize or con concept um, wise. Um, so going through asylum, for example, when you have to apply for asylum as, an, as a trans person, you have to apply under the category of belongs to a social group, not as for gender identity, right? Like LGBT people, trans people, they're all grouped into this like social group that is persecuted. Mm -hmm. That's entirely left for the immigration officer's discretion and biases to play into. Like the biggest factor of whether you're granted asylum is who you're sitting in front of. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the persecution you faced. And you have to like document the persecution you faced in a way that appeals to the person you're sitting in front of. And how are you gonna know that? And that needs to change entirely, right? Um, the, the folks that are coming in at the border, they have no clue about the legal system. They, have no, they might not even speak English. And they have to document their prescription. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's possible, right? And they don't know the U.S. legal system. They don't know how to talk about their persecution in a way that will appeal to the person they're sitting in front of that will then grant them asylum. They have to, the, the person that is granting them asylum has this power to give them freedom, but they don't know anything about transness and they don't understand the violence that trans people face just by being visible. Mm -hmm. um, unlike a lot of LGBT folks, gender is visible, very, very visible. You can't, like when I was applying through asylum, I had to prove that I was trans and I had to prove that my transness was going to be visible and harmed in my home country. And I was like, what do you mean I'm visibly trans? If I walk on the street, you can see I'm trans. Well, not anymore, but you know. Um, back then, <laughs> um, yeah, it in in its entirety, like, is the the there's no context for you know transness. There's no context of the violence we face, um, and there's it's constantly like fitting a square into a circle mold. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah. I'll pause that. <laughs> Yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, I, I have not been through asylum. So, um, but you know, as soon as I started working um, under my mentors uh, for trans rights organizations, it was 
primarily supporting people from countries in Africa who were fleeing, you know, genocide, essentially uh, being hunted and killed. Right. Um, and um, I really learned that um, that was the focus of the um, organizations that I was being brought on into. And I, I was a baby, like I didn't know anything. I would, had just transitioned myself, you know. Um, but once I realized that, and even now just having a presence on social media, if if I'm connected to um, trans rights stuff, people will be DMing me from other countries and like Uganda and stuff like that, saying they're being persecuted and they just need to like leave their country, right? Um, so it's just, it's, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot what's happening. Um, and so if, if this country is not prepared to receive them with their unique needs um, to those experiences, um, you know, we're doing a disservice to um, an opportunity to really make a difference in people's lives um, a as a global community specifically. Um, so, so that's something I, I had to learn um, is happening. Um, and then additionally, also when I was uh, directing the house, um, a, a young trans woman was uh, murdered and um, you know, at like 18 um, and uh, a little bit about some staff members were telling me about her history and that she actually came from a um, country in Latin America that, uh, sorry, uh, an indigenous community that like literally, if you were trans, you will be burnt alive. Um, so a lot of the community members had, you know, helped to support her kind of escape that. Um, and so it's just people don't really necessarily understand also the severity into which the need for resources for asylum seekers is um, something that uh, we should be investing in significantly. Um, for myself being exposed to that and it was like a really um, huge awakening um, that has really been driving me forward to do trans rights advocacy. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing your experience by the way. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank, thank you both for sharing your experience. I feel like I'm learning so much about the asylum process and, and the immigration process and how ridiculous it is. Um, I can't speak too much to, to that because I, I don't have the experience, but at least in my experience, like being trans and just dealing with systems and how those systems are transphobic in their in their own sense of being stacked against us, right? Like the way that trans people, like I don't think cis people quite understand the way that trans people have to be essentially humiliated in order to navigate through these systems because we are told to like do this dance and jump through these hoops. And it's all because we have that trans label in front of us. It's, it's a lot of these things are accessible a lot more easily to cis people and a lot more easily accessible uh, to just a general population. And by having that trans label in front of us, um, we're then told that we have to go through all these extra steps in order to access these same resources. So not only does there have to be more resources, like you said, but there has to be an easier access to them, especially for trans people, like being constantly asked to, you know, like you were, like you were saying in your experience, like having to prove yourself that you're going through these experiences. Like, it's just so ridiculous in my eyes. Like, how do you even prove something like that, that you're, that you're going through violence, right? It feels so degrading and so humiliating. And, um, yeah. Yeah, in that sense, I feel like a lot of our systems that we face through and that we have to navigate through are kind of inherently transphobic in that way. Mm -hmm. I just want to add, thank you for that. Yeah, that's really well articulated. Um, there's a piece around dignity. I think that's what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. um, that it, it's it's that's the piece that as trans people we're trying to articulate. You know, mm -hmm. um, 
how do you understand what dignity means for somebody who has an experience that you don't? Um, and how do you represent that in your systemic processes, right? Um, so thank you for pointing that out because um, that's something that I want to put a focus on as well, right? Like it's a it's a, the absence of dignity in the process in which you as a population have to be put through um, a system that does not have space for you, like you said, putting the wrong shape in um, because we haven't carved that space out yet. Um, so thank you for that. Absolutely. I just want to add to um, thank you both for sh sharing that because two things, um, the dignity piece, right? How do you explain to someone that misgendering is painful? Absolutely. That is like violence. Yeah. Like how do you explain to someone who's never experienced that? And that is constantly a thing that you have to do in immigration processes, right? Um, and and then you the second thing is you layer on the cultural piece like yeah. you were saying about like being South Asian and trans mm -hmm. and feeling like um, our culture did not accept us and cannot accept us and I'm sure you experienced that too. Um, you know, like I was I remember sitting in front of a asylum lawyer as I was like looking for asylum lawyers. Um, and this woman had to, uh, happened to be white, and I was explaining like the experiences I had. And she asked me, she's like, okay, but if you like return to India, could you be part of the Hijra community and be free? The Hijra community is the trans community in India, right? Um, and I had to explain to her and she had no con like context of India or like, you know, South Asian culture. Um, but she was an asylum lawyer and, and claimed to have done so many cases from India. So it was baffling to me that she asked that question because it was like, I have an undergraduate degree in engineering in America. And if I go back to India and I'm part of the Hijra community, I will not have a job. Do you not get that? Mm -hmm. um, so in, in those, so if you layer the cultural piece to it, it gets even more transphobic, um, I feel like. Yeah. yeah, so thank you both for sharing that. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I feel like I wanna jump in, I wanna share so much more, but we're here for you. Um, Kavi, you brought up, you know, the uh, the systems in place here. And when I mentioned that it's getting more and more scary, I mean, they're just coming up with all these policies that are outrageous. Access, you know, to the bathrooms, that's always been a thing. But also they're really targeting youths. That's a scary thing. And taking away access to health care. I mean, who wants to take access to human beings, you know, who can be healthy away? Well, these people. Uh, so let's talk about you know, how systems, in in your own terms, you know how they impact and affect your lived experiences here. And one of the things that gets lost in the narrative when we talk about um, the you know, lived experiences of immigrants, even children of refugees like myself, and you know asi asylum seekers or asylees, are the the social experiences that you have here. Like we don't talk about how. Our, it doesn't get out there. Our identities are compounded by all these other issues like, you know, racism. You know, you leave a country that you you will be persecuted for being yourself or being outed. And you get here and you think, freedom! And then you're, you experience all these, you know, onset of other issues. Like I mentioned, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, and in a system. Mm -hmm. So let's unpack that. <laughs> to unpack starting with me this time. 
<laughs> um, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, I, I I honestly feel like I have been just very privileged in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I obviously had my struggles, but hearing a lot of stories from other folks, especially other trans people, I, I realize like how much privilege I do have. And, you know, I have very easy access to healthcare and things like that, especially being in California, I think is, is a big privilege in and of itself. Um, and so when I think about like these systems and, and especially right now, there's such an attack on trans people and on trans youth, as you're saying, Michelle, um, it just, it breaks my heart really. Cause it, I feel like all trans people should be awarded the same privileges that I was awarded, the same access, the same safety. Um, and it's really, um, it's really hard, especially in the face of misinformation and disinformation um, to kind of combat that because at least for me personally, like I get very emotional because <laughs> it's, it's something so close to my heart. Um, and so it gets really hard to have those conversations with people when, especially they have their, you know, predisposed beliefs or, they don't want to let go of what their in disinformation that they have. Um, it gets really hard to have those conversations. Um, and feel free to add this because a lot of my, my, the question I'm asking for us to unpack is also in spaces where you're supposed to feel safe, like, mm. you know, the overall LGBT or LGB, mm. mm -hmm. you know what I mean, community. And so as a person who's, you know, trans but then also immigrant or migrant or asylee and then a person of color i mean how does this all share with us these experiences that you may have that doesn't really get talked about a lot um yeah i mean so i, I hope i am following but i will just kind of go with that um i mean you know a lot of the advocacy that i've done has been specifically tgnc for that matter right which is that We've seen LGBT resources like housing and um, different, you know, like resources like that. Um, forget the T, right? So we've been really pushing TGNC and saying like, we're done being erased. Like we actually need something just for us. Um, or we're done like you saying you're LGBT inclusive and sending white gay men only mm -hmm. um, who don't care about us actually. Um, and, um, so I think that that articulation is something I've been putting forward with, um, specifically city government as well. Um, and, um, as far as like, uh, what we were talking about, you know, with a lot of the anti-trans legislation being passed right now and those policies, it's, and, um, you know, my own experience, it's like, I remember when I came here, uh, one of my colleagues who is, has behind the scenes done so much for um, trans healthcare in San Francisco specifically, um, including that, you know, the, the coverage by Medi-Cal um, and all of this, like they worked on it. And when I heard that, I was just like, wow, like you did that, you know? And, it, and honestly, like for a lot of us, like I could speak for myself, like it's just really sad to see the way that people are talking about things like, um, you know, gender affirming uh, surgeries in mm -hmm. states like Kentucky and, and um, Tennessee because like I, as I remember the few years before my um, surgery that I was like suffering so much in my body. And it's like, how do you explain to somebody like, like you said, how do you explain to somebody like, I feel like I'm not going to make it in this state. This, this change is going to help me. And it was like, after my uh, uh, surgery, I was like, I can breathe. I, I, I didn't feel like I started to live until then, honestly. Like, yeah. it was really hard to explain that to somebody to say, you know, and I was 
at that age, I was like 29, you know, and I was like, I feel like I'm starting my life today, you know. Um, so to hear all this kind of rhetoric around like people regretting surgeries or like calling it whatever they're calling it, amputations, Bosh, like, mutilation, right? It's like right. Um, horrible. It's um, you know, but at the same time, like I try not to get defeated by it because the reality is the people that are doing this have always been doing this. And I'm very fortunate that I was mentored by black trans women who, um, you know, had to literally fight, you know? And, and so, um, you know, I don't get discouraged by this. Um, what happened in Kentucky, uh, it was slimy and they passed those, they passed, they overrode the veto with a microphone off, I heard. Um, and that's just, this is white boy games. This has been going on from the dawn of time. Yeah. And um, we just have to be unwavering like our ancestors were. And um, it, it is going to be a hard fight because it always has been. Um, but we have each other, you know. So I just try to stay positive in that sense. Um, but I do think it, it's important that we remember and that we have these conversations that all those things are connected in the ways that people are strategizing against us. And and that is genocide. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what I've said is like for for people who don't understand what's happening right now with anti-trans legislation is that it's an effort to eradicate our existence. Um, but we've gotten us this far, right? So, um, and that's a long way from where things were, say, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's exa- it's exactly <laughs> yeah. where I was going with it. Right, okay. And I didn't want you to leave, you know, a, a, a stone unturned <clears throat> if you felt like it wasn't safe enough for us to be even honest with each other that sometimes within our own community mm-hmm. we are erased or silenced or um yeah, yeah. treated wrongly totally. if you will so um i love that you said white boy games because that, <laughs> that's what it is white boy games um it's so interesting you know like i came to this country to like find freedom because i was suffocated in my society and sometimes as these things happen, I'm like, is this better off? Question mark. <laughs> um, but I do, I mean, I have a lot of privilege, even with all the things I've you know, experienced. And we all do in this moment right here in this city. And we live in a space where we have access to so much as trans people, um, you know, sometimes. But it's a, it's a hard time for trans youth at this moment. It's a very, very hard time to, you know, experience the little euphorias of starting your transition in an environment that's telling you you're awful and wrong and deranged. Yeah. And to them, I think, I mean, we're done being erased. We will not be erased. And we'll do what we have always done, which is like be within our community. And sometimes it has to be, um, you know, we have to uplift within just the trans community, because like you said, like sometimes the LGB community doesn't don't understand the issues that we're facing, you know. Um, and to trans youth, like that's it's so I, I saw this video come out today um, from um, I think them, the media outlet um, that was just so powerful. It was saying, you know, how. We have always persevered with the strength and power of our community being together. And we've survived everything and will continue to survive. Um, And that's what's most important. But when will it stop? When will it 
When will it stop for us to for us to have to reframe it like that? Why is it constantly a war against us with like one example that is an outlier that's taken out of context, like this trans shooter? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a hard time for trans youth at this moment. But um, we will persevere. I'm I'm sure of it. I hear from all three of you that, you know, we we keep going coming back to our strengths, which is we have community, we have each other, yeah. um, even when we feel excluded and we're 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 just not going to go away or we're not gonna let them, you know, erase us in this way. How do you I guess where do you draw that within yourself and then how you organize that within the rest of the community to to kinda you know keep fighting yeah um do we have a choice (laughs) i can start us off um i was fortunate like you know i feel like when i came out as trans i went on this like journey where i was like okay this is what this is that i'm dealing with like i'm either not gonna make it or i'm gonna just go all the way with this i was completely lost i didn't have anyone to turn to honestly i was fortunate i had some friends you know people like people in my life were like allies and stuff but I just didn't feel that I had the right people. You know what I'm saying as a young person in my, and this was in my early twenties. Cause I, you know, I, I knew I was gender conforming looking back, but I didn't have the language. And then at 20, I tried to come out and then I was discouraged by queer people in my life who, you know, that's just, they didn't know what they were doing. So I was discouraged. And then I, it was at 24 that I was like, okay, this is it. Um, but I managed to just search so much that I found uh, people who taught me the trans legacy. And I think that that's the piece that a lot of young tra- trans folks, it, you know, I, I was directing a uh, trans peer based organization. Um, and there was a lot of young trans folks in their like early 20s. And I remember um, I asked them, like, do you have relationships with your elders? And a lot of them didn't. And they were really yearning for them. Um, so I think that that kind of like, I remember when I was feeling really suicidal around the time I came out and I said, you know, I just, I was in so much pain because I didn't know anyone who had survived something harder than what I felt like I was experiencing in that moment. Uh, But later in life, like I did find those people um, and they were my elders and they taught me a certain legacy of survival, which was that of family and sharing this kind of family love that a lot of trans youth don't get from their biological families, you know, whether their families love them or not. It's, it's not, it's a way that people don't know how to love trans children and, and fortunately, nowadays, a lot of trans parents have access to the education that they are doing that and um, all the power to them. And they are also under attack currently. Um, but I guess just to say, to bring it back to your question, it's like holding on to the culture of trans survival and the culture of trans legacy, um, which, you know, we now have shows like Pose and um, oh, what's the other one? Love and Nano, like things like that, you know, so um, that really capture those histories of how people took care of each other when there was so much discrimination. Um, so I think um, being able to capture those um, through art or documentation and through relationship um, and continue to teach those to younger generations is, I think, what's going to allow us to like kind of reach back and pull them up through this hard moment in history. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I try to look at it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's, it's tricky for me personally, because I think it's, it's a little bit of a balancing act for me to kind of find the middle ground of, you know, 
fighting back against those systems and trying to, you know, be that wall of protection for the trans community and also like, you know, setting down the pitchfork sometimes and actually like taking care of people within the community and like uplifting people. Because I feel like a lot of people sometimes, and I, I see this especially with allies, they tend to focus on one more than the other, um, focusing more on, you know, attacking transphobic people or speaking out. And that's all necessary and needed and absolutely great that they're doing that. But there has to be the other side of that too, which is turning back around and taking care of and uplifting the trans people who are in need. Um, and so for me personally, like I've found the most like strength and hope when I do that kind of work, when I do turn to my own community and say like, okay, what, what can we do for each other and uplifting each other? Um, and I feel like that's just so important and what I personally prefer to focus on, especially when faced with um, this kind of onslaught that can feel really hopeless to deal with sometimes. And it can also, for me, be important to remember that there are so many people like doing that work as well, even if it's not necessarily me all the time. Like it seems like Joaquin is doing amazing work. <laughs> so thank you for all of that. But you know, there's so many people on the front lines like you who are doing such amazing work. And so I turn to I turn to you and I turn to our elders and all of those people who are doing the kind of hard stuff. Uh, meanwhile, I can kind of turn turn back around and focus on the community and, and take care of us. But I feel like both both pieces are absolutely necessary and, and especially for, you know, those who might not be TGNC and maybe LGB or, or any other kind of allies. I feel like sometimes um, one tends to get forgotten. So really want to emphasize the importance of both, you know, pushing back and fighting against transphobia and our transphobic systems while also um, looking inward and uplifting and taking care of our own too. I want to echo both of what you both said. Thank you so much. I, lo I love that. I especially taking care of the community. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wish for a soft life for us where yeah. we're not all fighting all the time, where we don't have to fight all the time. That's the utopian society um, that we're working towards. But until then... I love the idea of the elders, you know, that our community is where we get our strength. We've done this again and again through the decades, through the generations. Um, and it's those stories of resilience. Um, I personally, you know, found um, my community that helped me. I mean, you know, through Parivar, through um, I have a trans mother, you know, that's my chosen family. That is that uh, she has helped me a lot. Um, I personally have trans daughters that I often share stories, you know, to. And I, I like saying resume of resilience a lot. <laughs> um, and it's like, you know, everything that's like behind the curtains of what we've done, what, what our paper resume is. Um, and it's like how we've persevered through all the challenges, everything that's happened in the background. Because I don't think people realize how intense transition is. It's not just like, yeah, identifying and like using some pronouns, unless you know that's your that's your journey. But even the the internal work that it takes to spread your wings and live a life that you're trying to live, it's truly resilient. And sharing those stories, I love like collecting those stories for myself and sharing those with my community because that's where I find strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks, all three, for sharing. Yeah, I this bring, we're bring it back to um, just the uh, the experiences of 
those of us are especially focus on global south um migrants refugees immigrants and let me back up you know i had this conversation it's an interview with someone um a friend who is an activist from uganda and it was the day that they had announced that they were bringing back we we call kill the gays bill and we were all in sydney for world pride and and so you know, he, we were talking about what was going on and he said, I, I kind of feel like I shouldn't go back home. And I said, I don't think you should. I think you should just squat here and, and do what you need to do and don't go back to Uganda. I think they're going to pass the bill. And that sure enough, they did. Right. So for those who don't know, Uganda has passed one of the most terrible and harshest bill, anti-trans bills, anti-LGBTQ bills. Um, the, uh, it could be life in prison and or the death penalty in some cases. Um, and I had to really think about my comment though, because I said, "Yeah, just squat here or come to the United States and just stay there," you know, and and without even thinking about what what other experiences I might be putting this person through that isn't necessarily mm-hmm. part of this privilege experience that I have, you know, in that sense. So the question back to you, um, to you all, is how we, because we are sitting in positions of privilege compared to some of our trans uh, brothers, sisters, siblings, how do we inform, how do we engage the rest of the world when we say, you know, fight back against these, uh, I call the evil access of powers, so we know the influence of anti-LGBTQ policies actually stems from the Western world. How do we inform and advocate for a better foreign policy so that those who are in countries that continue to persecute, especially trans folks in the global South, you know, what kind of work can we, even if it's small, even small as privilege, and I'll kick us off, for example. That's one is just to educate myself on, um, you know, that the, you, you have to understand the cultural nuances before you throw out big sweeping recommendations like just just go squat in the United States and you'll be fine. Uh, I try. Yeah, no, I love that question. There's so much we should be doing because, you know, growing up abroad I, I, and coming here, I realized like how clueless a lot of Americans are about the world. I'll I'll say that. <laughs> um, and it's firstly informing ourselves, you know, about what's going on in the world, like you said, the cultural context, right? And understanding the world, understanding the different experiences, and then having conversations. These conversations are so important, um, you know, and in different formats to to reach the people that are facing these issues abroad, right? So I try to use my voice as much as possible so someone like me in India can exp- can learn from that and find hope in that. But that's one aspect within the community, right? And then it's, it's demanding like training and education within the immigration systems of the world, right? Take examples of, of countries who've, who are a little farther along, like Sweden, um, Spain, you know, um, they, their asyl- asylum processes 
have a little, have some better policies in terms of trans education, in terms of trans contexts. And it's important to take, ex take those ex examples and bring it here and then also impact other countries because it's a global, it, it's, we should all be walking this line together into protecting trans people everywhere. And then there, there are some outliers that are just not going to protect us and, for, and to safely get the trans people out of those outlying cultures and, and put them in places where they can be. Um, and that's so unfortunate because when you take a trans person out of their culture, they're losing their culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're losing their culture. Yeah. And they're choosing one aspect of their identity. And how do you bridge that? For me, I've done it through Parivar, mm -hmm. but that's not always accessible. Um, so that's my takes. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that last point that you made is just, crit it's just critical. Mm -hmm. um, and I, again, I try to bring it back to like decolonizing ourselves because the reality is that a lot of third gender people were you know, revered in, in previous cultures and had specific roles in community that we played that were honored. Um, so it's like, how do you do that kind of education? Uh, but as far as like um, advocating for those, um, you know, how to address that this issue that you're talking about, um, I think there are amazing trans organizations that are creating systems of support and have I've literally with my own eyes have seen transform trans people's lives and who then go on to become like doctors and nurses and like, you know what I'm saying in this country too. Um, and, and that's positive and effective. Um, it's just, these organizations are small and few. And I think that the country and different States need to invest in those organizations and, and supporting them and the work that they're doing. Um, so I would start there um, because it's already, it's already happening. It's been happening. Um, they just need more support a lot of the time and more capacity um, so that's one piece, uh, demonstrating the impacts that those services can have on community. Totally. I thousand percent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, definitely echoing everything you, you both have said so far. I, I completely agree with everything, like um, giving support to organizations, um, education. I think those are all crucial pieces. Um, I think a really big one that people tend to forget is money. Right. I yeah. mean, like. If people have the ability to have the privilege to do so, like giving money to organizations, but also giving money directly to trans people, right? Like people who are seeking healthcare or seeking um, immigration, all those things, there, there are avenues to do so. And I really, I really encourage people to give money because that's something that we really need and um, something that, you know, people tend to not think about. And it's, it's an easy thing to, and um I think it's it's so crucial and so needed. Um, so I think all those pieces are are absolutely necessary. And I think like all of what you said are really great for for allies and LGBT allies and cis allies. Um, I would also say like for trans people specifically, um, like just kind of keep your peace <laughs> is kind of my advice to trans people. Like if you can't do the fight, like don't do the fight. And if you um, can only do certain things within your capacity, like only do those things because like your existence is so precious <laughs> um, and we don't want to burn ourselves out in, in this process too. Right. So I, I would say like really, you know, allies and LGBT community, like really do the heavy lifting for us most of the time, you know, like listen to us, uplift us, but like get your hands dirty. Um, and for trans people, I would say like, just keep, 
being yourselves. And I feel like that's one of the most radical things that we can do. Um, my mind also kind of jumps back and I, I feel so terrible that I can't remember this person's name or, or where this was, but there was a video that went viral a little while ago of a trans person um, going to like a local like city council meeting or something like that to speak out against um, some local le legislation um, that was being done to restrict the healthcare in their state. And this this person had come up and, and spoken about his experience with healthcare and how vital it was for him. And in front of the entire council and, and the entire crowd that was there, he like took his testosterone injection in front of everybody. And I, I saw that video and I was like, this is the most amazing, <laughs> radical, badass thing of like I've ever seen in my entire life. And I just like had so much respect for that individual. Um, and I feel like just those kind of um just being visible and really just showing like we are here and we're not going to be erased in those kind of ways, I feel like is, is such a powerful method of resistance that, that we can do just by existing. Yeah. I love, yeah, go I ahead. I just want to echo uh, Covey's point about the money aspect. Yes. Um, I wish there were more organizations that are like helping. I mean, there are organizations that are helping trans people apply for asylum. Right. But like also alleviating some of the barriers Right. Um, you can for an immigrant coming into America and applying for asylum after you apply for asylum, you will get a work permit to sort of get employment and support yourself. But a lot of the times there's so many barriers to that. Right. To getting access to fin finances. Mm -hmm. I wish there were more organizations that help alleviate some of that. And if there if you can't find organizations find trans people that are either going through that, that process. You know, um, going back to my, when I was applying for asylum, um, I, was in, I was a student in, in undergrad and I was, um, I was taking on internships part-time during the semester and working all the time to pay legal fees in order to apply for asylum. Um, so uh, yeah, just more money in, in trans people's hands as they're going through processes. Definitely. Yeah. And that brings up the issue of equity, right? Because even if you, you know, are like, okay, here, come on here, you still have to start from such a such a farther back place that, you know, equity is really important, especially financially. So San Francisco just passed the first um, uh, trans and gender non-conforming, I think, um, GI program, the gift program. Um, so general income for trans people um, is the pilot. So hopefully it sticks around. But I think that's another piece in which, um, you know, financial equity will support people in being able to thrive. Yeah. These are all such great examples. And by the way, the money part, <laughs> at the end, we'll show you the uh, collection of organizations who are with us today. And so if you're tuning in online or you're here and you're an ally and want to support all these organizations need your help. Um, I'm going to start to wind down my questions. So if you're here and would like to ask the speakers a question, we will start to um, we'll start to collect those questions. But give us a minute uh, to wind down. I'll I'll walk around with a mic to get your questions. Uh, I think one of my last questions, really, you know, today is such a significant day, and it started. Um, with a significant reason to do so. But now, especially here in America, at least, the general public is interested in the day. And there are like, you know, campaigns and like all this stuff now. And it's really, it was really hard for me. And I, I knew what I'm going to do as a cis ally on TDOV. I'm showing up here and, you know, supporting programs like this. 
But I oftentimes wondered, like, what the rest of the other communities, like, what are they doing? They're posting stuff on Facebook. So this is a big question. You know, it's, it's to me, today is about members of my community and what I need to continue doing. What does this mean to you, though? What does TDOV mean to you and what you would wish for the rest of the world who's kind of now like, oh, it's TDOV, I'm going to take a picture with my trans friend and post it. Um, it means to them. Yeah. 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 I think you get my question. Yeah. Um, I can start us off. Um, I mean, within community, I think we're doing what I hope we'd be doing, you know, is just being visible within community and sharing those stories of resilience. That's where we find our strength. But then outside of community, it's so funny you say, um, you know, take a picture with my trans friend. I've actually had that happen before. Um, and I've communicated to everyone. I was like, this is not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Do the work. If there's any day that you do the work for trans people, it's today and TDOR, right? Um, donate to organizations, find those organizations and, and donate to those organizations because get money in the hands of programs that can help alleviate the barriers for trans people. Um, you know, not just post about it, um, actually have real conversations. If there's people in your life that hold prejudiced feelings about trans people, you owe it to the trans people to have those conversations. Have those conversations. It's difficult to have it with your grandmother, your aunt, whatever. But you have, if you want to support a trans person, have those conversations. Because that's one person at a time you're changing something. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, totally. And I'm glad you said the piece about education. Um, you know, for me... I think I'm just so happy to be here with other trans folks today. Like I remember when I started transitioning, like visibly looking different, I was like trying to be stealth and I was super anxious. And then after a certain point, I just started telling everybody that I was trans all the time, you know, and that was so liberating for me um, because, you know, I think a lot of some of the girls use the uh, butterfly icon and my partner who's in the audience and I talk about how uh, you it's, you know, a caterpillar doesn't just go into a cocoon and then grow wings. It's like it turns into goo <laughs> and then it turns into a butterfly. And so for me, like TDOV is about like fully self-love, you know, I had to let go of any inhibitions that I had about who I was in order to be myself fully as a trans person. So TDOV for me is about that empowerment to be fully okay with myself and to look at my trans colleagues and and brothers and sisters and say, yes, we are. And we don't have to hide actually. Um, But I agree that um, it just requires, especially like in uh, I'll say organizations that are trying to uplift, but actually are extracting from trans people. Stop doing that. (laughs) Like whoever that white man, white cis woman is like, holding their thumb over trans people of color and leadership you need to confront them and tell them to stop because it's our turn to lead our own fight and our own movement um and it's still not happening so i'll leave it there (laughs) might have been our mic drop moment but (laughs) sorry yeah i don't know i'm gonna follow that (laughs) um just yeah definitely echoing what what these two have said so far already um 
Yeah, I think I think also for me, you know, like I said at the beginning, visibility is kind of this like double-edged sword, right? It can it can um be really empowering while also kind of putting this target on our backs, but I'm also just so grateful for the, that privilege to be visible um and be here with all of you, but also for all of you being visible and for for me to be able to see you all and our community and and our elders and everyone be their visible selves because that also does empower me as well. So I'm just so grateful for that and to be a part of everything. I I love you all. (laughs) Thank you for being here today and sharing your joy again. Um, All right. Well, we'll open it up to the audience here for questions. Um, so thank you so much for your amazing uh, stories and uh, facts. I am drawn to the word visibility. And the way I look at it is also in the framework on how we talk about trans issues. For example, the entire Black Lives Matter movement is about visibilizing the amount of murders that are happening in this country. And it has come to that that we had to make those words up so that people literally start seeing it. I feel the same problem of cis narratives even defining the questions or defining the frameworks of trans agony, of trans joy, of trans beauty, of trans intelligence, of trans power, does disservice to trans imagination. Mm. So what do you do? to drop that seed of your authentic transness in your daily living? That's a really good one. Thank you so much. So I talk a lot. So I want to give somebody else an opportunity. No, go ahead. All right. Um, Yeah. So let me make sure I understand the question. Um, It seems like um, what I, correct me if I'm wrong. So what I I heard you ask is, um, it seems like, as trans people, we don't really have an effective opportunity to represent ourselves. So our, our, our experience, be it agony, joy, what's actually happening in this country on a day-to-day basis ends up being filtered through our cis allies sometimes mm-hmm. uh, to the point where um, the questions that we're even thinking about are not by us, correct? Okay. Um, thank you so much for that. And I also thank you for um, bringing up the murders of specifically Black trans women in this country. Um, it's a piece that I talk about a lot um in uh the political framework uh because people are not talking about it and it's disturbing to me um so but i i just thank you for bringing us all back to that and like i said earlier um that's why i made that comment of being like okay yes trans people are leading but they still continue to be under the thumb of some you know cis white somebody and uh um I think it's really important that we continue to fight for those places. And that means having places for just us and specifically for just trans people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within that, you know, even questioning the fact that the, the term BIPOC is problematic because it continues to displace black leadership um, and indigenous leadership. So um, uh, the reality is uh, we need to carve out spaces where people who continue to be um, erased uh can just be with each other to have those conversations and then bring those conversations to the audience. 
Um, and I think that's the only way um, I've been I've been trying to bring to the table a lot of the fact that uh, BIPOC organizing continues to perpetuate anti-blackness specifically um, because of anti-black sentiments in the Latino communities, in the Asian communities. Um, and so it, similarly, trans it, the intersection of transness that's going to happen at, you know, double uh, the barriers. So um, I try to center myself in that, but I just... I'm not answering how I drop into the scene daily other than to try to do that in everything that we talk about. Right. Um, so I guess that's the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that question. Thank you, Jay, for asking. I, I think just the trans Im imagination part is so beautiful. I, I've always said this, like I've had to, I mean, just going through asylum, I've had to like document a lot of the persecution, but I've had to articulate my mind and my reality for cis people to understand in their language. And that is some is humiliating sometimes. It's dehumanizing sometimes. And like you said, the conversations we have within community is so powerful for that because I didn't have that in my in the early years of my transition. And I had to like always sort of pander to cis conversations. Um, and the conversations I'm able to have with you know, my trans friends, um, you know, some of them are here. Like when we're having those conversations, I was like, this, no one could ever understand this conversation. Like the nuances of this, the intricacies of this. We have, like, we always like articulate our realities in like similar bullet points, all trans people, because that's what cis people will understand. Um, but why can't you just believe us when we say mm. that we're tormented? Just believe us that it is hard to be misgendered. It is hard to be, you know, not seen for who I am. And it's not just like seen for like my gender. It's seen for the, t the person. It's like, it's kind of spiritual, yeah. right? And, and I think I love the trans imagination piece for that because that's like putting it in a box. We're the like examples of liberation. Believe us believe us i wanted to bring something up earlier about that because you know in the the money part oftentimes they're like what do you need it for how right. many people is this going to reach how many lives will it save and it's yeah. like what if it didn't go to like saving a you know yeah. a life uh i mean in what if it went to yeah. somebody's happiness but what if gender affirming care is health care yeah. because Everybody deserves to be healthy. What if it went to makeup for... To it like, should. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, how do you explain to someone, like, you know, a, a trans woman not being able to wear makeup if she wants to is, yeah. tor is torment for her. Right. How do you explain that? Right. Just believe us. I'm going to buy a t-shirt that says that for everybody here today. Kavi, uh, anything to add? Yeah, um, I, I don't have too much to add. Just again, thanks for the question. It's such a wonderful question. And, and just echoing again what these two have said completely 100% agree. Um, I'll just, just one thing to add to that is just it reminded me of one of my favorite memes that I've, I've ever come across. It's like, um, it's two different images. And the first image is like a photo of these two like Greek philosophers. And it's like when trans people are talking to other trans people about gender. And then the other side is when trans people are talking to cis people about gender and it's like a woman and a toddler and they're like playing with blocks. <laughs> and um, I just feel like yeah. that meme is, has been just so true throughout 
various experiences in my life, you know, and when talking to other trans people, I feel like I, I can, you know, drop all the kind of filters, as you were saying, that we that we have to kind of force ourselves through and really have those conversations and have that space um, versus, you know, sometimes having to talk to cis people, it can be kind of going down to those talking points and dumbing it down a little bit. Right. And so, um, yeah, just carving out that space, I think, is so crucial. And, you know, let us have those philosophical discussions instead of having to kind of dumb it down for the rest of everyone. And space for our spirituality. Like, I really thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I can't say that my trans journey has not been entirely intuited by my ancestral calling. Definitely. You know, like that's the only words I can put to it, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Trey. All right. Well, I want to thank this entire panel, you know, for sharing again, for your vulnerability and for, Trans Day of Visibility and also the fact that, yeah, it is a double-edged sword and um, we're in this together and there are many of us who want to be a part of this community and are going to ride the ride. Thank you to all of you who are joining us here in person at the Commonwealth Club for today's Global South Transgender Day of Visibility event. Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to bring back Jupiter Peraza, who's going to close us out before we go to uh, Power Hour. Thank you. I actually want to introduce the guest. Hi. Yes. Thank you. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Dr. Nas Mohammed. Um, good to meet you. I think I met a lot of you in this room, actually. But for those of you that I haven't had the pleasure to meet, I am an asylum seeker from Qatar in the Middle East. I am also an HIV physician in San Francisco and a new LGBT activist. That's something that happened last year when the World Cup was in my country, in Qatar. I became the first and only publicly out LGBT person from my country. And a whole thing happened since then, long story. But the part of the story that is not public is that a lot of the work that we did last year that resulted in the foundation that we have, Alwan Foundation, was done by transgender community in Qatar. And the one of the most awful things that were uncovered was the systematic persecution that they were going through um, that led to a report by the Human Rights Watch that came out in October. And it's the first country condition report really on any living conditions for the LGBT community in Qatar. But the transgender community specifically in Qatar were physically tortured by the regime, by the government. They were being kidnapped. They were being forced to detransition if they were found out to be transitioning on their own. And they went through like a lot of things um, that led to us like bringing aware. They were like while they were there, they built up the courage to come out and say something even though they were at really, really high risk of being persecuted if they were found out to be speaking. So that led to the birth of Alwan Foundation, which is an organization that's based here in the Bay Area. It is a sister organization to Parivar and the LGBT Asylum Project. What Alwan is doing is doing something like you guys said earlier, like we need to fight, but we also need to turn back and create safe space for us. And so Alwan is doing this. So I'm doing like the debating my government on TV sometimes kind of thing. And then also creating country conditions reporting through research, but also we're doing the 
thing where we turn back and say, how can the people today be safe and live a better life? So through the Alwan Foundation, actually, we created a new scholarship for people from the Gulf countries specifically because it's a big void. Um, and that's program, the scholarship is called Eden Night Scholarship to talk about a trans story that was in the news recently from Saudi Arabia. And it's coming from our region, really. And that transgender person had to take their lives away because there was no other path but death for them, which is hard to talk about, but it's a reality. And what the scholarship is doing is giving capital to like get out. So even if it's at one person at a time when somebody is trapped, they will have a scholarship to just get out and then have a support system through um, other organizations. We're hoping that the LGBT Asylum Project and Paravar and other organizations will help build that support system for somebody to get on their feet. But I'm just here to say that, you know, tr- the transgender community is really the reason this foundation started in the Bay Area, even though they're not visibly leading it today. And yeah, like, thank you all of you for being here today and for your fight. Um, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, panelists, um, Michelle. Um, uh, thank you to the Commonwealth Club, uh, part of our Bay Area and the LGBT Asylum Project for being here. Yeah. And Trans Clinique. Yes. Trans Clinique. There, there you go. There you go. I had that ready. I had that ready for everybody. And Open House. Yes. Yes. Uh, who were our great supporters uh, for our uh, for the panel and also uh, the Network uh, Power Hour. So thank you both for that. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.